You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Well, I invite you to return to Genesis 12 as we continue in our study of Genesis, picking up where we left off last time at verse 10, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life may be spared for your sake." When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Heavenly Father, we look to you, Lord, that you would be pleased to teach us from this passage, Father. It's not the words or voice of a man we desire to hear this morning, Lord, but it is You. We each desire, myself included, it is Your voice that we desire to hear. Speak to us, Your people, O Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen. Scary circumstances and scary situations is what we come to this morning, scary storms. Um, the text here in verse 10 really takes a turn from what we saw last week, does it not? Uh, we find ourselves um, walking along with Abram and Sarai in this sojourn into what is really arguably a very scary, very frightening, and very troubling situation. And if you have true saving faith, be, be certain on this. The Lord will exercise that faith. I mean, He'll exercise that faith. Last week, we were talking about faith. <laughs> this week, we're in a scary situation. Um, that's the way it works. Um, and these situations, they're custom-tailored, they're custom-made to reveal inner weaknesses, they're custom-tailored, they're custom-made to reveal inner faults with our character. And they're difficult, they're hard. Last time in our study of verses 1 through 9, we, we, we discovered a glorious light. It's like, really, for lack of a, uh, another title for the sermon, I, I just named it a glorious light, verse 4. Because arguably, from chapters 3 through 11, much of the text is dark, isn't it? And then we get to chapter 12, verse 1, and oh, what a wonderful light. 
and we can follow the light back, really, to its, its genesis, if you will, in chapter 3 and verse 15 with the first gospel utterance. In uh, verses 1 through 9, we see the Lord making promises to Abram. If you'll look at verse 2, you see three of them there. God promises to make Abram a great nation. He promises to make his name great. Promises to make him a blessing. It's important that we hold on to this. We won't understand verses 10 through uh, and following if we don't hold on to these blessings and these promises. In verse 3, he promises to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. And also promises that in him all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then if you look down to verse 7, there's a sixth promise. To your offspring I'll give this land. That is the land of Canaan. And the amazing thing is the rest of Scripture actually is the fulfillment of these promises. Uh, the rest of Scripture is the fulfillment and how these promises are fulfilled. Uh, they all have their yes in Christ Jesus, don't they? They all point to Christ Jesus. They're all fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So um, it goes back to Genesis 3 and verse 15. The promise of a son, the promise of a redeemer, the promise of a Messiah. And this is the heart of the Lord. I mean, this really is the heart of the Father, the heart of the Son, the heart of the Holy Spirit to give precious gifts to those who don't deserve them. Um, folks like me and like you, uh, we don't deserve any of this. If we think we deserve this, we're lost. It's that simple. Well, how does Abram react to all of this? Well, he reacts in faith, and we learn so much about his reaction. Namely, we learn what saving faith looks like. We saw and discussed really four marks, if you will, of saving faith last time. Uh, the first one is that saving faith really does forsake all to follow the Lord. What was, what was Abram called to do? He was called to forsake, right? He was called to leave. Leave what? His country. To where? He doesn't know. Not exactly. He has an idea. He, knows what, he knew what direction to head in. He's called to leave his kindred. You know, He's called to leave his father's house. He's called to leave all. To follow the Lord. Secondly, we saw that saving faith makes the Lord the number one priority. The Lord will not settle for second place. He just won't settle for that. And the, quite frankly, um, that even... That even finds itself, I mean, as difficult as this is, we have to love the Lord more than we even love our closest family. We're to love the Lord more than we love our spouse. We're to love the Lord more than we love our parents. We're to love the Lord even more than we love our children. And um, quite frankly, if we fail to do that, uh, we will not only teach our children a faulty set of priorities, but will also lead our closest family members to follow a faulty set of priorities as well. Um, let's not be afraid of that, as I said last week, because when we make the Lord first, He will actually transform us into the best sons and daughters that we can possibly be. He'll transform us into the best husbands and wives we can possibly be. He'll transform us into the best uh, parents that we can possibly be. So we don't want to be afraid of that. We want to embrace that in His strength. And third, we saw that saving faith embraces all the Lord's promises. I mean, it has to. Who's going to come to Jesus unless they believe He is who He says He is? Who's going to come to Jesus unless they believe they need Him? One of the things I'm always trying to impress upon folks is their need of Jesus. I've been doing this with the children uh, recently and on Wednesday nights. 
I mean, that's really most of the battle is seeing that we need Jesus uh, because the world teaches us, at least at this juncture in history, teaches us that we're basically okay. We just need a little help, a little bit of education, and we're going to be fine. Now, if we believe that, we're not going to look for a Savior. And for the most part, our culture believes that, and that's why they're not looking for a Savior. But saving faith believes the testimony of Scripture that there's no one who does good. No one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have turned aside. Together, we've all become worthless. Uh, this is blasphemy to our culture today. But nevertheless, it is the testimony of Scripture. And if things weren't that bad, why would God send Jesus to die on a cross? See, Saving faith embraces that. Saving faith embraces these promises. One, the promise that if we, if we flee to Jesus and repent of our sins, we'll have eternal life in Him. The, the equal and contra, and contra pro, promise to that is if we don't, we will perish for eternity. Saving faith embraces these things. And it's only when the soul has perceived these things with conviction that it's in the best interest to follow Jesus that it turns from the world. We won't turn from the world until we believe that Jesus is the better way. Simply won't. So saving faith embraces the promises. It has to. And that leads to the fourth thing that I pointed out last week is that saving faith produces worship. This is so important. This is a great diagnostic for our hearts, by the way. Um, saving faith produces worship with such a glorious Savior. If you really believe Jesus is who He says He is, then you have seen that He's a glorious Savior. How can that do anything but produce worship in our hearts? I mean, if we, can, if we can talk about him like he's a subject of history right alongside George Washington, we haven't seen him. We haven't seen him. Um, and therefore, we won't worship him. So saving faith produces worship. True saving faith produces worship both private and public. Now, Here's something that I always tell, and I'm always sure to tell folks, and as a pastor, I like to remind everyone around me that if you're in possession of saving faith, it's going to get tested. And um, we need to be reminding ourselves of this all the time, in the words of Peter, so that, you know, when we find ourselves up against it, we won't think something strange is happening to us. We won't think something strange is happening. God is going to test that faith. That faith. And when the Lord blesses us with the twin blessings of faith and repentance, He begins a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process of taking us from one situation to another situation to another situation to another situation. And as we see in our text, some of these situations are actually very frightening. They're very scary. Um, in our text this morning, we see that really all is going well for Abram. Verses 1 through 9, things are going really well. Verse 9, things are going pretty well. And then verse 10, we find things aren't going so very well. What happens in verse 10? Well, there's a famine. There's, there's a severe famine, actually, we're told. And as a result of this famine, Abram travels down to Egypt. Now, Abram's no fool. He's lived for a while. Uh, he's at least 75 years old at this point. He's been around for a while. He knows that there are many dangers associated with going to Egypt. He's aware of that. 
And one of those danger centers around a blessing. Sarai, Abram's wife, is a very beautiful woman, we're told. She's a very beautiful woman. And I want to speak to that for a moment. I mean, how old do you suppose Sarai is? She's, at, she's probably at least 65 years old. It's possible that she's 64, but I doubt it. She's probably at least 65 years old, possibly older than 65. And she's beautiful. This is a little bit of a digression, but I, I, hang with me for a couple minutes. Let's just think about that for a minute. She's 65, and she's beautiful. She's 65, and she's beautiful. It's possible to be beautiful at 65. Okay? That's step number one. Each chapter in life is a blessing. I mean, we have infancy. We have youth. We have teenagers. Teenagers, teenagers. Yes, we have teenagers. <laughs> Not picking on you, Shine. These teenage years, boy, oh my. But they are blessings. They're, tr- they're, 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 they're difficult, but they are blessings. You're a blessing. Young adults, middle age, senior citizens. There's beauty in each of these chapters. Why am I pointing this up? Because we live in a culture that is worshiping this 25 to 30 age group to the degree that everyone's trying to conceal how old they are. And what is the result of this? Well, there's many things I could say. This is a digression. This is a little bit of a digression. I don't know Genesis 12. 10 through 20 speak explicitly to this. It's a little bit of a digression. But one thing is for sure, the result of this is an immature culture. We are currently dwelling in an immature culture. Why would I say such a thing? Because this culture does not prize wisdom. It doesn't prize wisdom. That's not what it prizes. And uh, because if, if if this culture was a mature culture, it would prize wisdom first of all. And um, we have a culture that doesn't think they can learn anything from the older generations. We really do. That's just a broad stroke. I'm not speaking of everyone. There's exceptions to this, but largely, we don't think we can learn from older generations. And I I, I don't mean any kindness here, but a culture that doesn't believe that they can learn from their seniors is a culture that has no hope of maturing anytime soon. And, and, and listen, I'm not just picking on folks who are 25 or folks who are in their teens or even middle-aged folks. We could say this about everyone because even the senior citizen can look to those who are older than them. I'll say, how do they do that? You read the history books. And when you read the history books, you read about people that are older than you. I will confess that most of the, generally speaking, when I'm doing sermon prep, I try to read books that are modern 
They're important to, to read books that are modern. We learn things about the culture. We learn things about the geography. We learn certain facts. Sometimes we learn things about ancient words we didn't know. It's important to read the modern books. But I'm going to tell you what, that's not where I mine most of the gems from. You want to know where I get most of my gems from? The older generation. I like to sit at the feet of Charles Spurgeon. I like to sit at the feet of John Owen. I like to sit at the feet of Alexander McLaren. And you benefit from that on a regular basis. Trust me on that. It's because there's a lot to be learned from our older generations. From generations that prized wisdom and had a maturity about them that is very much absent today. So, I don't mean any unkindness here. But what we, I think what we're experiencing right now is a form of judgment. I mean, when Israel was judged by God, sometimes the judgment was rulership by children. Let me give you an example. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4. God says, quote, I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them. These commercials that are so prominent today, these advertisements are so prominent that show mom and dad looking like a couple of fools and the kids like they've got it all together. But I hope each one of you, I hope you despise those commercials as much as I do. That's not a good message. That is not a good message. Even if it's a subconscious message, that is not a good message at all. That's a cancerous message. But back to Sarai. Thanks for pardoning me of this digression. But back to Sarai. Sarai's beautiful. She's 65. It's not the title of the sermon, by the way. Uh, but it is something I want to, I, I hope all of us walk out of here with. She's beautiful. She's 65. One of the dangers here is that when Abram goes into Egypt, there's a lot of scoundrels around anywhere where there's power. Um, there's people around that are always trying to rise, selfish people, ambitious people, people that will do anything to try to get in with certain crowds or certain uh, individuals. Abram knows that when he gets to Egypt and they lay eyes on Sarai, that there's a good chance they're going to want to take her and they're going to want to take her to Pharaoh so that she can become part of Pharaoh's harem. This is the fear that Abram has. So he devises a plan in verse 11 we're told that when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a beautiful woman, beautiful in appearance. And of course, things are going marvelously well so far, aren't they? You know, you can, you can imagine them uh, traveling and Abram at once telling his wife she's beautiful. That sounds good, doesn't it? Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, what's going on here would have needed no commentary to the first audience that read this. They would have understood very well what was on Abram's mind here. So Abram tells, verse 13, tells Sarah to say that she is his sister. And sure enough, in verse 14, just as Abram predicted, we're told that when he entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw Sarai, they praised her to Pharaoh, and Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now we have Abram's wife Sarai taken. Um, fortunately, the Lord intervenes. 
As we read down the text, he strikes Pharaoh and his house with a plague. The nature of this plague we're not told. We don't know what kind of commentaries uh, speculate on it. But the fact is, we don't know what kind of plague it was. Nor, do, nor does it explain how Pharaoh knew that the plague was the result of, uh, of Sarai being Abram's wife. We don't know those details. It's not important that we know these details. What's important is Pharaoh realizes he realizes it and he rebukes uh, Abram and they all get pitched out of Egypt. They all get thrown out. Uh, now, there's two dangers in this text. I was careful in my notes. It's like, it seems to me that we have two dangers right now from this junction forward. And one danger is to uh, try to rid Abram of any fault here. Um, and that's the position that some commentaries over church history, the course of church history, have taken, where they practically rid Abram of any fault whatsoever. Uh, it's not likely the course that we're going to take today. Um, but there's a second danger here, and the second danger is being too harsh with Abram. Um, I wanted to make sure I had that in my notes here somewhere where I wouldn't forget it. Don't be too harsh with Abram. Why? Because if I get too harsh with Abram here, I'm going to be a hypocrite. Abram's in a scary situation. One I've never been in. I've never been in this situation before. But I've been in much lesser situations. I, I can think of one right now where I was talking with some people and an opportunity for sharing the gospel came up and I didn't take it. Why? I was worried about what those who were around me would think if I did. That's a much less situation than what Abram's in. What did I do? Pretty similar to what Abram has done. So I think there's two dangers here. The danger of trying to rid Abram of any fault whatsoever. The danger of being too harsh with Abram. What in the world happened? What has happened to Abram who will become the father of the faithful? What's happened here? What's happened to the chosen of God, the patriarch in the family line of Jesus? I mean, he's just found himself being rebuked, rightfully so, by a pagan king and thrown out of Egypt. What in the world happened? Well, we can, re we can reconstruct what has happened by re revisiting last week's lesson, namely the marks of saving faith. That's Really, the second reason why I wanted to review them like I did, one is just to review our memories being what they are. We need a review. But secondly, if we reverse these things, we discover what has happened. The marks of true saving faith that we looked at last week. True saving faith forsakes all to follow the Lord. True saving faith makes the Lord the number one priority. True saving faith embraces the Lord's promises. True saving faith produces worship. Okay, what does all that have to do with this unfortunate and, untro and troubling incident? Well, it has everything to do with it. What has happened to Abram's resolve? What has happened to his resolve? Namely, his resolve to forsake all for the Lord and to make the Lord the number one priority. Well, the answer can be summed up in one word. Famine. Famine. That's what's happened. Abram has mouths to feed. We're going to learn as we continue on we're going to learn that Abram's household is large. It's very large. He's able to send over 300 men into battle against these kings that we're going to study here in the not-so-distant future. This is, a, he has a, this is a large group of people that Abram has here. Uh, he's got a lot of mouths to, to support. 
uh, a lot of livestock to support. And furthermore, Abram's nephew Lot is with them, and he has his servants and his livestock. And I would imagine Abram feels responsible, being the senior, uh, feels responsible for Lot's folks as well. So in short, Abram's really up against it. But the fact is, Abram is never told to go to Egypt. He's told to go to the land that I will show you. He's not told to go to Egypt. We're, we're never told that Abram sought the Lord for wisdom. We're never told that he waited on the Lord for relief. The course of action seems to have been taken by Abram himself. But let's not be too hard on him. The danger is real. And I think Calvin points this out, and I think this is brilliant. Abram doesn't backtrack. I mean, he doesn't run back home, does he? He doesn't go back up to Haran. Maybe things were as bad in Haran as they were in Canaan. I, we don't know. But I would think if he would have backtracked back to Babylon, things probably would have been better there. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't go backwards. He doesn't retreat. Secondly, point out, very clearly fear had overcome Abram. And this is why I want to caution us from being too harsh on Abram. I mean, surely we can, you can see yourself in Abram, can't you? I mean, I hope so. I mean, modern equivalence to famine is lack of work. That's a modern equivalent to famine. I mean, you, you get laid off. And you use up all your savings and your unemployment runs out and now you've you got a family to feed and you don't have any money coming in. That's the modern equivalent. I mean, can you feel that? I mean, that might be in the future for some of us. Some of us have been through that before. Third, Abram had lost sight of the promises of God. This is really important. I mean... When Abram loses sight of the promises of God, guess what happens? The world becomes really big. And when you're in that situation and suddenly the world becomes very big, God becomes, to those same eyes, very small. Very small. So fourth, Abram leads on his own strength and devices. I mean, now that his resolve is weakened by the severity of the circumstances, no doubt fears overcome him. Egypt's fast approaching. Abram realizes the danger. He devises a plan. Sarah, you're beautiful. Tell him you're my sister. But what about Sarah? It's easy to read this story, and some of us are familiar with this story, and we read the story, and we just move on to chapter 13. But Sarah is... Sarah is taken. I mean, she's undoubtedly against her will. She's brought to the harem of a pagan king. And she's part of a marriage ceremony where she's married to this king. Could you imagine? I mean, when they came to get Sarai, I would imagine they came armed. Could you put yourself for a moment at the scene? We're here to take Sarai. We're here to take your sister. And off she goes. Verse 
What about the promise? It's probably been waiting for me to bring that up. Genesis 3.15. You knew that was coming, didn't you? Let's think that through for a minute. What about the promise? Genesis 3.15 is the promise of a son. And the Lord has an important role for Sarai to play in the promise of this son. In fact, a promised son has already been promised to Sarai. If Abram is going to become a mighty nation, he's going to have to have children. He's married to Sarai. She is going to have to bear children to Abram to fulfill the promise. But now Sarai is carried off to Egypt and married to a pagan king. <laughs> when you think of it that way, you can almost see who's behind it, can't you? Attempting to thwart the promise. Attempting to thwart the gospel. Behind all of this is an evil that is so sinister, it's beyond our conception and our imagination. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. How many recognize those words? There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it brings death. Answer, are, are these, these words are from Proverbs, right? Are they from Proverbs chapter 14 or Proverbs chapter 16? I don't expect anyone to know that answer. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is it's from both. Now, why would we have two verses that are alike? Because of emphasis. Why do we need emphasis? Because we're so prone to do this, aren't we? We're so prone to take matters into our own hands and lean in our own strength. And here we see the plan. Boy, does it go, oh, does it go wrong? It's a deceptive plan. It's going horribly wrong. But God intervenes, verse 17, the Lord afflicts Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because, Sarai, because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Abram is sternly rebuked. They're all thrown out of Egypt. What are we to glean from this? You know, by way of application, probably already made many applications, but um, I want to make four applications. The first is fear. We need to be mindful and aware of what fear does to our faith. We need to be mindful and aware of the danger that fear places upon our faith. It's cancerous to our faith. Uh, it, it has a tendency to be a wrecking ball to our resolve to forsake all for the Lord and to follow the Lord and to make Him our first priority. Fear has a tendency to be a wrecking ball to all of that. It could be fear of finances. It could be fear of losing out on something. It could be any thousand of fear. Uh, any 1,000 or 10,000s of different circumstances. Jesus is forthcoming here. He tells us that in this life we'll have many trials and storms. In fact, in John 16.33, He says, in the world you'll have tribulation. Okay, why is Jesus saying this? He wants us to know it's coming. And here, we need to be mindful that as it comes, we're going to get scared. And the point I want to make is when that fear hits us, we need to be aware that that fear is and can be cancerous to our resolve. I think understanding that will be helpful in overcoming it. As soon as we get scared, if we could just stop and say, wait a second. Lord, I'm getting scared. This is going 
This is, this is going to ruin my resolve to forsake all to follow you. It's going to mess me up here and keeping you the number one priority. Help me with my fear. So fear is very important. That we be mindful that it's cancerous to our resolve, just as we see with Abram, who's the father of the faithful. If it could happen to him, it could happen to us. But we need to be mindful. There's a detail that I haven't shared. Abram's a newbie in the faith at this point. He's a newbie. I mean, he's just been converted. He's a newbie. The second thing that we want to look at is let us be sure our eyes are upon the Lord. And this speaks really to the first in many ways because fear places a powerful pull upon our eyes. When we get scared, we have a tendency to look away from the Lord and to the circumstances that we're in, which is what Abram does. He looks away from the Lord and he gets consumed really with the circumstances. And of course, then we take things into our own hands. We take things into our own hands. We come up with our own devices. And, and in this case, it's a disaster. Uh, in our case, it will be too. Um, third, related to the second, let us be sure our eyes are on God's promises. Because when our eyes get pulled off the Lord and our eyes get pulled off the promises of God, as I've already said, when our eyes get pulled off the Lord, when our eyes get pulled off the promises of God, these eyes who have been pulled away from the Lord will begin to see the world as bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And when these eyes see the world as bigger and bigger and bigger, the perception of these same eyes will see the Lord as getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and unable to help us. Perhaps unwilling to help us. And um, the last thing is worship. <laughs> I've looked all through verses 10 through 20 here and... Um, there's no worship going on. You notice that? And when I've said saving faith produces worship, but it's interesting that there's no worship going on in verses 10 through 20. There's no worship. Um, Abram's not building any altars. And this is a good test of where we are. If you're leaning on your own understanding and walking in your own strength, you know you won't be worshiping either. You won't be worshiping. So we can, we can use this as a test to see where we are. Are we worshiping this morning? You know, certainly not asking you if you're sitting here this morning or if you're in a service this morning. I can see that you're all here. I can see that you're all present. Um, I can see your mouths moving when we sing and, and uh, you're, you're all appearing to be quite attentive. I thank you for that. But are you worshiping? Because, you know, it's possible to come here and go through all the motions and never have worshipped at all. And it's a good self-diagnostic always to ask ourselves, am I worshipping in private? Am I worshipping in public? And of course, one reason, if the answer is no, one reason is maybe we're not a believer yet. 
Maybe we never worship. Because mental assent will not produce worship. But another answer is perhaps we are believers, but we're just having difficulty worshiping. Why? Well, one reason why we might be having difficulty worshiping is we're walking in our own strength. And we're taking matters into our own hands. Just as Abram does here. It's a thing we learn here. What do we say in conclusion to all of this? I wrote these words down. I think they'll, I think they'll comfort you. Let us be thankful we have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weakness. Amen. Isn't that the, isn't that the best of news? We have a great high priest. You see, the, the great high priest sympathizes with Abram. Abram, <laughs> you got this one messed up. He so easily and quickly reverses it, doesn't he? Pharaoh doesn't know really what hit him. But what he does know is it's got something to do with Sarai. And he knows that he better get her out of there. And I believe that this took place before Sarai was ever violated. I fully believe that. Um, thank goodness we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weakness, one who's been tempted like us in every way but without sin. Listen to his words. In, this, in the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. We're going to have problems. Beware of the fear that will be associated with some of those problems because they'll wreck, there'll be a wrecking ball to our resolve to want to follow the Lord and to make Him number one. Be aware of taking your eyes off Him and off of His promises. You see how this is just reversing the, the marks of saving faith? How they just topple like dominoes? Let's be mindful of these things. Jesus also gives us another promise. He says, first, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's what we have to set our eyes on. Jesus really has, take, he really has overcome all of this. We're, we're not attempting here to ignore any problems that may or may not be here. We're not like an ostrich who puts his head in the sand. We're called to embrace the fact that Jesus has overcome every difficulty that we're ever going to go through or face. And He will walk with us through those difficulties. The difficulties are real. Just like Abram's concern about what could happen to him was real. That's why I say we've got to be careful we're not too hard on Abram. Abram had a suspicion they were going to take his wife. His suspicion was more than suspicion. That's what happened. Now, what would have happened if she wouldn't have told them that Abram was her brother? They probably would have killed Abram. The danger was real, you see. One of the dangers in preaching the way I'm preaching right now is that someone could say, well, you know, so we're just going to ignore our problems? What about our problems? Well, the danger is real. Abram really is. That's why we want to be careful we're not too hard on him. He really is in danger. I don't think he ever should have been down there in the first place. But that's easy for me to say because i got a refrigerator full of food. That's why we don't want to be too hard on it. But on the other side, we don't want to 
there's a problem here. This isn't something we want to follow. This isn't the way we want to do things. Amen? Let's keep our eyes on the Lord. Let's keep our eyes on His promises. Let's embrace those promises. Let's worship Him as these scary circumstances come and as they go. Let's worship Him. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for this text that so wonderfully instructs us in matters that are so vitally important to our pilgrimage here in this world as we face situations, some of, some of which are quite scary and frightening. Let us be aware of the danger that fear will place on our resolve to follow You, to really make You number one. Let us be aware of the, of the effects of taking our eyes off of You and Your promises. Lead us to take matters into our own hands and come up with our own devices. Let us be mindful of all of this, Lord. Paint this all on the, the chalkboards of our hearts, Father, that we would truly take these lessons in and truly learn these lessons, O Lord. And we thank You that You are indeed taking us as we look to You and as we look to Your promises. You are indeed taking us. Sometimes, sometimes through some situations that aren't too bad, but sometimes through situations that are just gut-wrenching and scary. Father, You will bring us through to the other side. And we thank You and we praise You. And we worship You. In Jesus' name, Amen and Amen.